Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Waving Flag. Today we have part two of the paper regarding human rights and the World Cup. We're going to be focusing on Russia today as well as Qatar. And then I'm going to give you a few concluding remarks as to as to the project and and what I found. Um, so I don't think I need to preface it with, with much more than that. I hope you've listened to part one. Um, if you haven't, then part two might be a little bit confusing. So go make sure you listen to that. But let's start with uh, Russia 2018 and the criticisms that the uh, World Cup or that FIFA faced for hosting the World Cup there. So during the build-up to the tournament, um, the director of global initiatives at the Human Rights Watch, an NGO, published an article explaining that FIFA, quote, condoned many human rights violations undermining its own policies, end quote. And even published a report in 2017 called Red Card, in which they essentially document a wage cheating, unsafe working conditions, and um, exploitation of workers for construction of um, stadium sites. So specifically, there was a story of, of 21 workers, or not a story, but in total, there were 21 workers died in stadium construction, according to the uh, Building Workers International Organization. And they cite in their report that, um, quote, most of these deaths were because of falls from heights or because of heavy equipment falling on workers, tragedies that could have been averted if safety and health conditions were enforced. So essentially explaining that these were deaths caused by um, a lack of attention to safety and health on on behalf of um, FIFA and on behalf of kind of the organizations that were taking charge of the stadium building. So whether that be government or other, I'm not quite sure. But the Human Rights Watch comment um, on this on their article and explained that many North Korean workers were brought in as the forced labor, which adds another kind of level to it, right? It's not only that there's bad working conditions, it's that North Koreans were specifically brought in for the stadiums and it's forced labor. And they describe the, and when I say they, I mean the Human Rights Watch, describe the egregious working conditions and claim that they, the North Koreans were brought in as, quote, slaves and hostages, end quote. And that the North Korean government essentially forced workers to leave and take up work abroad uh, under the threat of uh, persecution of their families or or other. Um, I think the one story that stood out to me the most is, is one worker, a North Korean worker, was found dead in a storage container outside the stadium, which, you know, I don't, I don't even need to say is, is absolutely horrible to even think about, um, to just have a worker found dead in a storage container outside the stadium. It makes you ask questions as to, the working conditions as to his housing, as to whether or not he wanted to be there, as to whether or not, as to why he was staying there despite the conditions, um, brings about all types of, of horrible questions that unfortunately I think weren't asking. Um, but regarding Russia as a whole, I think a lot of the criticism that people heard was, wasn't about 
workers or the building of the stadiums, but it was more about Russia's general lack of freedom of, of speech. And so the Human Rights Watch, again, um, their article claimed that the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, was using the games to um, sports wash his rule, as they called it, which is to say to legitimize it by hosting a sporting mega event. And we've, we've spoken about this in the past on this podcast about the power of hosting mega events. And it's precisely what, what Mussolini was doing um, for the 1934 World Cup. So essentially, Russia wanted to paint an ideal picture of itself and wouldn't let people speak ill of the country leading up to the World Cup. And this was especially true regarding LGBTQ rights. So Russia had an unprecedented anti-LGBTQ purge in 2017. The leader of the Chechen Republic and member of the Russian Advisory Commission of State Council, um, his name is Ramzan Kadyrov, said, quote, We don't have such people here. We don't have any gays. To purify our blood, if there are any here, take them. And essentially, and then on top of horrible statements like this, laws in Russia prevent, quote, gay propaganda. And so this was really an area that um, for which FIFA and Russia were attacked prior to the World Cup, saying that this country does not support human rights. Clearly they do not when they have members of, of more or less government speaking in such a manner and when they have laws preventing, quote, gay propaganda. Now, in addition, there were kind of more, um, I guess, specific examples of human rights defenders facing prosecution um, in Russia. So like I said, Russia was trying to crack down on criticisms um, from within Russia as much as it could. And people that called out human rights violations were under threat in Russia. And and that was really seen through um, a report that, that Amnesty International dove into. So the first defender I want to bring up is uh, Andre Rudamanka. And he was brutally assaulted in 2017 for documenting illegal construction work on the Black Sea coast. Then someone else, Igor Nagovkin, spent more than a year and a half in pretrial detention on charges for his work defending prisoner rights and combating torture and corruption. A third example is Oyub Tityev. And um, Amnesty International explained in their report that he was detained for almost six months on fabricated charges because of his work helping victims on human rights violations in Chechnya. So just some of the examples of people that fight for human rights um, and do diligent work and were kind of put aside and essentially told by the Russian government to shut up in more violent ways. So those are the different layers of the criticism brought against Russia leading up to the World Cup. Workers' rights, LGBTQ rights, and uh, no freedom of speech in Russia cracking down on people that speak against human rights violations. So now let's shift the mood a little bit and go to the positives. So in 2017, a year before the World Cup, 
FIFA a, adopted a new human rights policy in response to the criticisms that it had received. FIFA pledged to, quote, go beyond its responsibility to respect human rights by taking measures to promote the protection of human rights and positively contribute to their environment, and it, uh, end quote, and it instituted uh, a new program for labor inspections at construction sites. So in response to the North Korean workers specifically, FIFA actually took action to ensure that no more North Korean migrant workers were used in the World Cup stadium projects. So according to uh, Building Worker International, which had brought up the issue in the first place, as I mentioned, um, they actually verified FIFA's claim in a number of independent subsequent inspections and um, said that that FIFA was right. So, you know, this is positive to see. An issue was spotted, FIFA tried to correct it, and a third party went in and said that the issue more or less had been corrected. In addition, um, the Building Worker International acknowledged that FIFA is the one who let them conduct the investigation in the first place. And I think that's important in terms of of transparency, right? You want big organizations like FIFA that have so much responsibility to be transparent and to kind of open their doors to third parties that have tremendous knowledge about specific topics like the Building Worker International Group would have about worker rights so that they can check that everything is is up to standard. By April of 2017, FIFA allowed 14 inspections of the 2018 World Cup stadiums. Conjunction to that, FIFA set up uh, an, in, an an initiative with the Klinsky Institute of Labor Protection and Working Condition Conditions, which requires that all stadiums be inspected for two days every quarter, and then the those inspections um, are flagged for inconsistencies that involved risk to the health and safety of workers so that appropriate action can be taken. So again, another party being brought in, another expert on the subject, FIFA saying, come on in, we want you to inspect our stadiums and see that all of uh, health and safety protocols are, are up to par. Now, it would be, um, I guess, a little bit naive to believe that Russia and these um, contractors were not using egregious practices prior to the World Cup, despite, you know, the reports. Um, and I think that that they were. And it would also be a little bit naive to believe that the Russian government or contracted companies in Russia would allow for independent investigations regarding working conditions. But the fact that FIFA was there kind of forced that upon them. So although it's hard to say that the World Cup had that impact beyond what FIFA controlled directly, I think it's definitely thanks to FIFA that the issues were were dealt with and that third parties were able to come in and lead independent investigations. So I'm not saying FIFA is irreproachable, um, but I do think that they addressed the issue in a, in a positive way and that wasn't really um, spoken about. Now, in addition to that, FIFA actually launched a complaint mechanism for human rights defenders and media representatives. So this directly kind of goes to attack the last 
um, criticism I was talking about in terms of Russia not letting human rights defenders speak, putting them in jail, detaining them, and so on and so forth. FIFA launched a complaint mechanism for people like that to report human rights violations. Journalists and active activists who con- considered their rights to have been violated while performing work related to FIFA activities, and that is important that they added the clause while performing work related to FIFA activities, can fill out a complaint which FIFA will then be required to respond to. So I think this shows um, tremendous initiative on behalf of FIFA, but it also shows a limitation. They, I feel like they added the clause while performing work related to FIFA activities because that's all they can really have control over. They can't really impact the whole country uh, as much as, as, as they would like or as we would like. And they can only kind of address issues that are directly linked to FIFA and the World Cup. So it was the same thing with stadiums, right? FIFA could let third parties into the stadiums, but they can't impact the construction of some hotel nearby that's also being built for the World Cup. But of course, FIFA has nothing to do with that hotel. So similarly here, if there are human rights violations, which I'm sure there were, not linked to FIFA, FIFA unfortunately can't do anything about it. But it's important to note that FIFA did set up a forum for human rights violations that were linked to the World Cup. Um, And it's something that I had no idea existed before I started researching this topic. So I think it's, it shows, again, kind of how unfortunately the work FIFA did to um, rectify the problems or even go beyond that is ignored. So I know that was a lot just for Russia, um, but let's um, move on to to the last example we have. Um, and we don't even have it in full yet because it hasn't happened, but the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. So since Qatar was awarded the right to host the World Cup in 2022, or which happened in uh, 2010. They were awarded the right to host the 2022 World Cup in 2010. An average of 12 migrant workers have died each and every week in Qatar. And that was up until um, last summer. The worst part is that that's a conservative number. And it only includes workers from India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. The lack of transparency around this issue, um, just from the difficulty of counting migrant workers and counting the deaths, means that the numbers are probably even higher than that. So why are so many migrant workers dying in Qatar for the World Cup? Well, in the first place, Qatar has a really small population, so it relies on migrant workers to help build its infrastructure. Just generally speaking, 90% of the workforce in Qatar are migrants. So that's kind of the first thing. Then Amnesty International spoke to 234 migrant workers to try and get a better understanding of what was going on. So every single one of them said that they felt deceived compared to what they were promised upon coming to Qatar. All of them said their passport was confiscated by their employer. About half of them said that their pay had been delayed frequently, sometimes by months. They live in camps with atrocious living conditions, 
share rooms with eight other workers, sleep without mattresses, get overworked, and are constantly reminded that they are at their employer's mercy. It's all just, I mean, just dreadful facts, really. They, I think it's important to note that every single one of them said they were deceived. Like, they were promised something, and that's why so many of them went, and, and clearly it did not, Qatar did not live up to, to what they were promised, or, or the companies they work for did not deliver on their promises either. So one example is a, uh, a gardener for a FIFA-related project. He, he explained, quote, My manager just said, I don't care what they said in Bangladesh. We are giving you this salary and nothing more. If you keep talking like this, I'll tell them to cancel your visa and send you back. So I think this goes to one of the points I mentioned in terms of being reminded that they're at their employer's mercy. This guy's manager is just telling him he has zero power. He doesn't care what was promised to him. He's going to give him the salary that he wants to give him and his employee needs to shut up and get back to work or his visa is going to be taken away. And it's really not uncommon for workers to to hear comments like that. Um, they need the job to provide for their families back home and they're they're really trapped by their employers in in these working conditions. They need their visas. They need whatever pay they can get and and unfortunately the the managers and the companies know that and they 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 really take advantage of that and i think that is in some kind con- the negative from qatar um there are other examples to point to of course um but i really i really think that qatar was flagged for worker rights violation leading up to the world cup um and and like I said, there are plenty of other human rights violations in the countries, but I, I don't think they're um, relevant enough to mention right now. So instead, we can go to, to the positives. So first, while many of these deaths are linked to projects associated with hosting the World Cup, it is important to note that most of them are not directly attributable to FIFA projects. There are only, well, I say only as if it's a small number and I really don't want to to come off in that way. It's still, any number is too much, but 37 of the deaths are clearly linked to the construction of stadiums or, or FIFA projects. But all the other ones are linked to the buildings of airports, roads, hotels, and other infrastructure. So, while that doesn't, you know, make it okay, I think it is something to note that 37 of them can be linked to FIFA directly, while the others cannot. Now, just like the previous case studies, hosting the World Cup put a spotlight on Qatar, and I think that's the biggest positive. Mohammed bin Hamad Al Thani. Um, the Sheikh of, or I'm sorry, I probably mispronounced that word. Um, though I guess we'll just say the leader of Qatar admitted that these poor working conditions existed before the World Cup and that they needed to do better as a country. And he said that as a result of the criticism that was brought um, by The Guardian and other articles about the working conditions in Qatar. Now, of course, the question of whether FIFA 
is rewarding poor behavior can be asked. But because 14 of the 22 votes in FIFA's governing body went to Qatar um, to award them the World Cup with the reasoning that no Arab country had ever hosted the tournament and that FIFA wanted to bring the tournament to new lands and keep developing football. So eight votes did not go to Qatar, but 14 of the votes went to Qatar and their reasoning I think makes sense, right? I mean, soccer is a global game that people all over the world play and you want to bring the World Cup to new countries. No Arab country had ever hosted the tournament, which I think needed to be rectified. And so although it may be difficult to take FIFA at their word that that's why it happened, given the corruption scandals and all that, the idea of spreading the tournament across to new places you know, is in accordance with with human rights. I think I think it matches up well. But there's a more, I think, pertinent question, question than whether or not FIFA was encouraging poor behavior, and it's whether or not these human rights issues uh, would have gotten so much traction in the news and media and so on and so forth without FIFA being there. And I think the answer is no. In 2014, the Terre des Hommes, Chief Executive uh, Danuta Shasher said, quote, We ask why FIFA, who can get national laws changed to suit their sponsors, cannot get laws changed in Qatar to make sure that people are not dying during the construction of stadiums. So essentially, Diadizom is asking why FIFA manages to change rules regarding sponsorships in countries to make you know more money, but don't require law changes in countries like Qatar. Well, actually, FIFA did. They, in 2019, um, following bad publicity in Qatar, new legislation was passed that allowed workers to change employers freely, to remove the exit permit, or the legislation removed the exit permit requirements and provided for a non-discriminatory minimum wage. So all protections for migrant workers you can't um migrant workers can change employers freely they don't need to lose their visa apply for a new one so on and so forth which also has to do with the exit permit requirement i mentioned and also there is a non-discriminatory minimum wage regardless of where the work is from same pay and i don't think that legislation comes into play Without the World Cup being in Qatar, I, I really don't. Without that spotlight, without that CNN factor, I don't think that happens. So although FIFA may have made the issue worse in the first place um, by causing Qatar to ramp up infrastructure and construction and so on and so forth, FIFA also helped shed light on a prior existing issue and accelerated change in the right direction. So I think... That's great. I, I do. Um, and, and I hope that others can, can see that. And of course, I want to say again that FIFA is not irreproachable as they themselves admitted to, to, human, to worker right violations in Qatar in 2019. But they subsequently released a statement in, in March of 2020 explaining that, that they were taking some other steps. So... They explained that the well-being of workers was the highest priority for FIFA and that the frequency of accidents on FIFA World Cup construction sites 
had actually been low when compared to other major construction projects around the world. Um, so not other FIFA projects, like other generally projects of this magnitude and size around the world. FIFA was arguing that their safety standards are actually higher. Um, they explained that studies are being done with the International Labor Organization and the Ministry of Administrative Development, Labor, and Social Affairs to help improve working conditions. So again, working with third third parties like the International Labor Organization to, to try and address the issue, really bringing in experts to see what they can do better. And finally, they demonstrated their hope that the 2019 law reforms in Qatar would actually have a positive impact and work to, quote, work to enhance respect for internationally recognized human rights in relevant sectors beyond construction, such as hospitality and transportation. Two years later, in response to, to the Guardian article, two years later, uh, talking about from the legislation being passed in 2019, in response to the Guardian article that I mentioned in episode one, FIFA reiterated the same message and claimed that they are committed to protecting human rights and specifically worker rights. So it is not encouraging to see that the Guardian's report came out two years after the change in legislation, but it does encompass those numbers. Um, now, I, d I don't have um, kind of the, the data to show any trends to see if it had been getting better after the the new law but my hope is that it has and um and regardless i think fifa played a tremendous role in helping pass that legislation in the first place so that does it for all the case studies um i just want to to kind of conclude and and bring it together in terms of where does fifa go from here so in 2016, the author of the United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights published a report requested by FIFA specifically about how FIFA can improve on human rights. So this is like the expert in the industry. Like uh, His name is John G. Rudgeen. He's a professor at Harvard, leader on the topic, and the author of the United Nations Guiding Principles on this for, for businesses and, and human rights. And so he, his report is really interesting. I really recommend you go read it. But he examined FIFA's existing policies. And his main takeaways, I think there were, there were three that I, that I want to point out. One, FIFA needs to be more proactive as opposed to reactive. So like we saw in um, Russia, it was kind of reactive they set up a forum for people to complain about human rights because russia was not letting people speak out kind of saw the same thing in qatar where they were a huge media attention for worker rights so then they tried to help push for legislative change so he's saying fifa needs to be more proactive than reactive second takeaway fifa needs to make more human right needs to make human rights more of a culture within the organization and third, FIFA needs to improve the transparency of its initiatives. Now, I did touch on transparency earlier, and I think that FIFA is improving on transparency. Um, I mean, you couldn't really go down compared to a certain point. <laughs> but I do think they are kind of requesting the help of experts to make it better 
And the fact that they asked this leading expert to comment on their policies, I think is bold. I think asking someone who leads in the industry, who has done work for the UN before, who has wrote the UN's rules about this, asking him to look into your policies, to look into your practices and judge them, I think is A, a show of confidence and, and B, real, a real demonstration that they are trying to to improve. So I hope that um, the trends continue and what I see as being positive. I think FIFA is taking good steps in the right direction um, and I hope that, that they will continue to do so. But I hope that through these four case studies, you, you kind of came to a realization that yes, FIFA has done wrong. Yes, FIFA is not, we can't excuse FIFA for everything that's happened and they're not irreproachable and they could have done things better. But I hope you can see that they have positive initiatives built in and they do some good and they shed light on issues that we would otherwise not know about. And I think those are, are the important takeaways. So I hope you enjoyed um, me kind of summarizing my paper. It's up on the website, wavingflag.net, if you want to read it. Um, I think I shared all the information in there, but but I know it's a lot of information and, and hard to, to listen to over the course of two 30-minute episodes or whatever it'll turn out to be. But uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to it, um, and I hope you have uh, an excellent rest of your day. Thanks so much.